Hi there, this is the Reverend Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is Love to Tell the Story. It's no accident that the early Christian church was often referred to as the Way. Not only did that name harken back to the words of Jesus himself, I am the way and the truth and the life, it also spoke of the unique and powerful ways that these followers of Christ sought to live and to walk on their own journeys of life. Truly, the way touched every aspect of their lives. And as modern day disciples, so it should be for us as well. Today's message is actually the first of a series of sermons about some of the aspects of the way in our life together as the church and in what we do. The first sermon has to do with the way of true worship. And this message is based on the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 16, verses 23 through 31, and from the New Testament, the Epistle of James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And this message starts with a few questions for us to ponder. So the question is, friends, why are you even here today? Seriously, think on that with me for a moment. What motivated you to get up out of bed and come to church on this autumn morning? I mean, don't get me wrong, speaking both pastorally and personally, I'm very glad and grateful that you're here. But you know, I, I have to confess that this is a question I've always kind of wondered about. Why are you here? Have you come here, for instance, out of a sense of gratitude for the ways that God has been acting in your life? Does this place and this time together we share in worship serve as an oasis, if you will, amidst life's many difficulties, not to mention some respite from a world that more and more seems to be spinning way out of control. Or for you, is it simply more of a routine? Something you do because it's Sunday morning and that's what you do. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps you come here this morning out of some sense of obligation. Or even, dare I say it, guilt. Hey, it happens. Now, I'd like to think that maybe you've come here today because in some way or another you found some measure of comfort, uh, inspiration, joy in what happens in our worship. And you've come here today seeking more of that. That you're needing, needing today to, to hear and to sing music that speaks to your heart and lifts the spirit. Maybe perhaps to recognize yourself in the mirror of scripture or in a song or as we pray together. Maybe you've come wondering if today the preacher just might say something applicable to your own life. And I'll be honest, I'm always hoping that happens. Or it could be that you're hoping today that by being here you might grow a bit in faith. To quote the Reverend Christopher Winkler, a Methodist pastor and preacher from Illinois, that you might live your life a little more faithfully tomorrow than you did yesterday. 
and that perhaps by being a part of this very sacred and loving community of the church, you will find here the kind of fellowship, support, and teaching that will help you to do just that. Well, I could go on and on here, but actually I suspect that the truth be told, the reasons that led you to worship here this morning probably encompass all or at least parts of everything I've been talking about, and so much more besides. And I'm here to tell you this morning that it's all very valid. I mean, this speaks directly to our personality as a congregation. It says something about the vitality of our life together here at East Church, right? It's all about who we are and what we do in the context of Christian worship. And I'll tell you something else. Worship matters. In fact, I think it's safe to say that our gathering together here for worship is the central activity of our life together as a church. Some might even argue that it is our primary reason for being. But all of this having been said, friends, I would like to suggest to you this morning that the real purpose for our gathering together on this or any Sunday morning, the way of true worship, ultimately has little or nothing to do with all the reasons I've been listing off here. If we are sincerely engaged, as we so often say, in worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, then it's not, at least primarily, going to be about the style of worship or the preaching or the music or the way we do communion or how we pray or how long the service lasts or how great the refreshments are going to be after the service. But simply and wholly, it comes down to ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name. Worshiping the Lord in holy splendor. It is, as Kat so beautifully read earlier, glorifying and praising God for his steadfast love that endures forever. Without that being first and foremost in our hearts, without that being at the center of everything we do here, then all the rest of it, folks... Well, it's all very well and good. But in the words of a worship consultant by the name of Ken Lamb, it all ends up as, quote, all the wrong reasons to do all the right things, unquote. Of course, this is nothing new, what we're saying here. The great 19th century Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard, he used to speak of the theater as a metaphor for describing how most of us come to misunderstand the role and purpose of worship. Kierkegaard would complain that all too often we imagine, um, and, and understand, I'm just saying what Kierkegaard said, that m the minister is the star actor or actress in a play. With the choir, the musicians, and the rest of the worship leaders as uh, the supporting cast, if you will. 
And then, in this image that Kierkegaard puts for us, the congregation becomes the audience of theatergoers. In other words, he says, worship itself becomes too much like a performance in which those of us up here are engaged in offering something of spiritual value to you down there. And trust me, trust me here, that's not how it should be at all. In fact, just the opposite. Kierkegaard goes on to say that in a proper act and attitude of worship, the worship leaders are in fact prompters who are leading the congregation and offering up their best performance of worship and praise unto the God who is, in the most earnest sense, Kierkegaard concludes, the critical theater who looks on to see how the lines have been spoken and how they've been listened to. So you see, the way of true worship is not so much about what we're getting out of the experience, but rather about what we are putting into it. I'm reminded here of a great story uh, told by Craig Barnes, president at Princeton Seminary. He was recalling uh, of a time when he was a pastor of a large congregation Following the service of worship, he stood at the back of the church to greet people, and one of the members of his congregation stepped right up, met him at the door, and began to berate him for his choice of hymns for the day. Those hymns you picked out, they're horrible, she said. Not a single one of them was the least bit familiar. They've changed all the words around to be too modern. They're not even singable. I hated every one of them. And to this, Barnes simply replied, well, that's okay. We weren't singing them to you. (laughs) That's one of those things I wish I'd thought of to say. (laughs) Ultimately, you see, our worship is not for us, per se. The singing we do is not primarily for our benefit, nor for our or your entertainment. Our prayers and praise and thanksgiving and intercession are never meant to be an act of self-aggrandizement. It's about God, you see. Every part of our worship, everything we do, is to be directed toward and to the praise and glory of God. What I do up here, ultimately, I'm a prompter so to speak, as has Kat been today and our deacons, as has been Susan and the choir, we are here to prompt your worship of God. And in that regard, as worshipers, we're all the performers. And the Lord God, you see, is the audience. But it's not to negate everything else I've said. It's just that it's for God first. But... It's in all those gifts of grace and healing and forgiveness of wonder. Those things all come to pass when we do worship well. Our Old Testament text for this morning comes from the first book of Chronicles. And it has to do with King David's reclamation of the Ark of the Covenant. In which, was, which was the container that ancient Israel had created to house the fragments of the stone tablets tablets on which were printed 
the Ten Commandments. And yes, in case you were wondering, that's the same Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones went searching for in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I digress. Biblically and historically, the backstory here is that King David had done just about everything possible to return this Ark to Jerusalem. And now it was finally happening. And with much music and shouting and food, not to mention David himself leaping and dancing, there is this incredible celebration that now at long last, this Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of who God was to the people of Israel, a reminder and symbol of everything God had done for them, this Ark had been returned. And now there would be the sacred place of worship, this tabernacle where the presence of God would live amongst his people. And you can tell from reading the passage, there's great rejoicing. And it all culminates with David calling the people to thanks and praise for all of God's wonderful acts, to, for his glory amongst the nations, his marvelous works amongst the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You see what's happening here? It's not a celebration for celebration's sake. It's what one commentator I read this week refers to as theology set to music. It's a song that declares just how wonderful God is. It, it's a song sung before the very presence of God. A celebration of the presence of God amongst us. A joyous affirmation of the movement of God in and through our lives. A much-needed reminder of the reality of God's unending hope. And a prompt to give thanks and praise for his power amidst the living of these days. That is what worship is supposed to be all about. That's what informs every part of the time every moment that we share together here on a Sunday morning. It's what my preaching, no matter what the text or the subject matter, has to be about. It's why we sing, and it's why we play the songs we do as a choir and congregation. And it's what leads us in everything we seek to do and to be as the Church of Jesus Christ, God's own Son and our only Savior. It's what makes us who we are as a church, and it is the way that we walk. It is first, first, to ascribe to God the glory due his holy name. Of course, that's not where it ends. Our other text for this morning from the New Testament letter of James this is another one of those so-called pastoral epistles that seek to encourage us in the ways that we seek to live as disciples of Christ within and outside of the life of the church. Now, specifically, the passage that Kat shared with us, it's about dealing with those who are sick or suffering or lost or enmeshed in sin. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Also, about those who are cheerful, in which case a song of praise is in order. See, the message of this passage is that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective, and that needs to be part of our work here. 
It's important to remember that. But it seems to me that the larger point is that our prayer and praising, while of first importance and absolutely essential for us as God's people, is never meant to happen in a vacuum. We are called to bring true worship unto God and God alone. That is true. But by our worship, we are meant to be transformed day by day, more and more changed into the people that God created us to be. In other words, friends, you know, we should never leave here on a Sunday morning the same way we came in. In some small, maybe even seemingly imperceptible and yet palpable way, we ought to be leaving this time of worship feeling different, changed somehow, challenged a bit in our thinking and living. Maybe we'll leave here relieved or strengthened or, or filled up with something akin to true joy and real love. Maybe we'll hear, leave here wrestling with Holy Scripture, getting a sense of the Holy Spirit moving. But the thing is, is that Scripture is filled with stories of men and women and entire nations coming into the presence of God and being changed by that, changed in body and soul and heart and strength. And they're changed forever. So it ought to be, each in our own way, for you and for me. What's that saying about faith being a journey and not a destination? Well, beloved, it's God's presence and his power and his prompting of us, that which we experience in true worship, that sets us forth on that journey. In just a moment now, we'll be answering this divine invitation that we have all received, and we will join with countless other kindred hearts on this World Communion Sunday at feasting at the Lord's table, sharing in a wondrous experience of knowing the Lord's presence in a very simple meal of bread and wine. Now, as we do this, I know in many ways, our sharing communion today is no different than sharing communion on every other first Sunday of the month. And, and I also know that we have our way of doing communion that is familiar and comfortable enough to us. It's, it's wrapped up in tradition and liturgy and, yeah, the way we've always done it. The truth is, though, at times I worry as we come to the table that this truly blessed meal becomes for us a matter of routine. So my hope and prayer this morning is that it won't be that way for us. But perhaps today, as we're passing the bread from one to another, as we drink from the cup of blessing, as we pray together, as we reflect on the presence of the Lord in our lives, we will find that as a golden opportunity to fix our full attention on God. To truly give God our whole thanks and praise for life abundant and eternal that's been given us in Christ Jesus. And by our prayers, both spoken and silent, ascribe to God the glory given him and do him.
But then, having been refreshed at this sacred table of joy and life, I pray that we will be moved to go, to go out there and become the people that God has always intended for us to be. And God, us, God has gathered us as the church to become. This will be the way of true worship, friends, and I have no doubt that each one of us, our world, and our church will be the better for it. So let's come to the Lord's table now. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, The Way of True Worship. It was recorded during our October 6th service of worship at East Congregational Church, and it's the first message in our current sermon series that we're calling The Way Of. Just a reminder, if you're looking for a church home, or maybe if you happen to be visiting New Hampshire about now enjoying the beautiful fall foliage, maybe looking for a place to come to church, we'd love to have you come to East Church and join us there. Our worship happens every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road, and I'd love to have the chance to greet you in person. Well, that's it for another installment of Love to Tell the Story. This is Michael Lowry. I thank you for listening. And until next time, may God bless you with a great day. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.